the next five weeks, uh, we're going to be looking into uh, the epistle, the first epistle of John. And if you're a little bit new to where that might be in scriptures, it actually comes at the very, uh, almost at the very end of the New Testament. So the final book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And Epistle 1 of John and his other epistles all come right before Revelation. But friends, again, it's so great to be here. My name is Fiona Blair, and I'm just delighted to be able to open up our first, um, our first um, week um, of a five-week series together in 1 John. Uh, there's some things for us to be aware of very briefly. If I can just take two minutes uh, to talk through the five weeks, you know, what it is to look broadly over the next um, couple of weeks in terms of the start of the series. As you've seen on that screen there, the major theme for us is light and love. And this letter is going to be a call to remind us that God is light and that God is love. These are our key big rocks, if you like, of the series. But then within that as well, we have some other sub-themes that are also going to be uh, very um, enlightening for us. One is that God is truth, and to look at that. Another one is that God is life. God is life. And that because of this life that God is, it's shown to us in Jesus Christ so that we may know it, that we may know what it's like, and we may know that it gives way to something beyond this life, doesn't it? It gives way to eternal life. And so God is life is, in fact, really like the theme of today's message as part of these first four verses. A couple of other things. I think that was, I've got one minute left of that, of that quick overview. Um, just to draw out some concerns that John has. Um, that John has three main concerns. He has a concern that we would know God. He's concerned that we would truly know God, know God in an encounter way, know God fully and truthfully as God is revealed by the apostles to us in the Gospels, that we might know that God is perfectly seen in Jesus Christ, that we may know that God came and dwelt with us in the flesh. His second question is asking us, do we know ourselves? Do we know that actually naturally we are not naturally good people? That we're not naturally good people who only behave badly like from time to time when we're a bit deprived of things like education or maybe it's a circumstance or maybe a particular upbringing. No, that's not actually true. What is true is that as part of our human nature that we are sinful people and that places us in a, in a place of need and a place of seeking the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. So do you know yourself? That's Paul's, uh, sorry, that's John's other question or concern for us. And thirdly, do we love? Do we love others? John's going to ask us, do we love each other deeply and sacrificially? Do we love each other in ways that are going to go beyond social camaraderie? Do we love this community that God has placed us in? And do we excel in how we care for the poor and for the oppressed? So friends, there's this, the really rough outline for the next five weeks as a bit of a guide as to where we're going. Um, and if you have not come across this book before, I'd encourage you to read it. For our friends online, uh, if this is something that you've not come across before, I'd love you to take some time during the week to read this book and to know a little bit about where we're going. 
I think it's a good time to just pause for a moment of prayer before we really open up this passage. Would you pray with me? Loving, eternal God, we thank you so much for your word to us today and we present ourselves now for our instruction and for our guidance by your word. May the word of life apprehend our senses today. May it be your words that are spoken, not mine. May our ears be open and our hearts be soft so that we might respond fully to what you have for us. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you breathe on us today? We ask this and we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So can I begin with asking you this question? Have you ever had a sensory overload experience? Can I see some reactions? If you're online, why don't you put something in the chat? Quick yes, quick maybe, a quick don't know what she's talking about. Um, a sensory overload experience is where one or more of our bodies, our body is sensing something that actually over, over that we're overstimulated by because of our environment. Let me say that again. Sensory overload occurs when one or more of our body's senses experiences overload because of the environment that we find ourselves in. So my actual sensory overload experience happened in a little part of India called Varanasi. This was um, back in 2010, and we as a family had been serving with a mission organisation in the central part of India, which is kind of not too far out of Mumbai. We'd been already there for about six months, and now it was time for us to head north, and we were going to join with a team who was teaching a school of Hindu studies. There was seven of us. Uh, there was myself and my husband, Mike, uh, our three children, Harry, Hannah and Georgia, they were four, six and eight years of age at the time. And we also had uh, a, a couple with us who had come with us from our sending church. And they were there to assist us with homeschooling the children. They were retired school teachers, an incredible provision, miracle and blessing from God for us during the season of mission. So the seven of us and we flew to Varanasi. It's actually an iconic place. It's thought of as being the oldest city in the world, and it is most certainly the spiritual capital of India. We landed safely. That was a big deal. <laughs> We'd been told at some point that the plane had developed technical fault, but we landed safely. And then as we had landed, um, we were met by um, a bunch of non-English speaking uh, representatives from the guest house that we were going to be staying at. They had a big like Jeep four-wheel drive thing. Um, the seven of us plus the driver and a couple of others all jammed into that. All our luggage was placed in the back of the car and we embarked on about a 45-minute trip into the centre of, of the oldest part of the city. And then as it became dark, we suddenly pulled up and everybody got out of the car. And we got out of the car and pulled up into the busiest, the most frantic, full of people, goats, cows, carts, motorbikes, rickshaws, this market, hectic more than anything else we had already experienced in the six months we'd been in India. 
And the reason why we'd all unloaded out of this car was because the streets had now become too narrow for the car to drive down. And so we have now some cycle rickshaws, three of them. So essentially the seven, us, the seven of us need to split up. Bags are loaded into the basket on the back of the bike and we sit in a little chair thing and there's a person who's pedaling in front and we continue to make our way into the centre of the city. We then went for another couple of k's in this kind of hectic chaos and abruptly it all stops again. Just stops. And again, we're offloaded. We offload these bikes. Like everything's just taken off, we're pulled off. And now the road has become too narrow and too crowded and too congested for a cycle rickshaw. So from here on in, friends, as we're still trying to make our way to the destination that we don't actually know because we've never been there before, uh, it's on foot. It's on foot. Now, the luggage, well, that was taken care of because there was uh, some, some luggage handlers or some porters who came again from the guest house and they picked up all our luggage and I just held, gripped onto the child that I had been designated to not lose. I gripped that child and I watched um, a small statured man of about 75 years of age place two of our biggest bags onto his head Fortunately, they were quite brightly coloured. And all I had for the next couple of Ks in this hectic, crazy place was to not take my eyes off those suitcases. Because I had absolutely no idea where we were going. I was holding on to the child, unable to ever look down on the ground to make sure I didn't step in something unsavoury. But all I could do was watch and hope that I didn't lose sight of those bags and hope and pray that for Mike and for John and Hazel, all trying to do the same thing somewhere else in this chaos, that they were all able to achieve the same end. So as I said, it became quite narrow, gripping the hand of the child. We're now separated, bags on heads, nothing but to look at but these guys. And it was for about another kilometre of narrow, winding, sort of um, little, little tunnels, again, very challenging with something on your head, um, lots of steps, little alleyways, finally we reached the guest house. Friends, a completely bewildering experience. It was so hard to keep track of the turns and the landmarks and the smells and the sounds and the sheer volume of humanity and the heaviness of life in this part of the world and the spiritual oppression and the intense devotion that could be sensed, devotion to idols, gods and goddesses. Finally, we arrived at the guest house. We were met by a beautiful woman whose name was Amungla. She had prepared for us an eggplant curry. Never had an eggplant curry before, but I've never been so grateful for an eggplant curry. It was warm and it was comforting and it was creamy, but actually, most importantly, we were all there. We had made it. We had made it. So on the 22nd of February, at 8.52, 2010, we had made it to the guest house. And the next morning, Mike sent an email to our family and to our friends and to the supporters, giving them an account of how the Indian Blairs had made it all the way from Mumbai to the old city of Varanasi via New Delhi, giving all thanks and praise to God. I tell you that story, actually not because it makes any remarkable declarations, but only because it illustrates that it's a trustworthy account. 
It hasn't been embellished over a decade of dinner parties or even exaggerated over a period of time to sort of make it sound better. It's based on what you can know about us. It's based on who else was there. It was based on the photos that we took and the correspondence that we sent via email to share what had happened. And when we read uh, together in this first verse, John's opening verse, of what's known as, as the prologue. It's kind of like the introductory verses into this letter that he's writing. We see that in verse one, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that we have looked at and our hands have handled. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so the strength and the conviction of these opening words of John's letter is actually because John speaks as one or as a group of, uh, of the apostles who have an eyewitness testimony. They have been eyewitnesses to the person of Jesus Christ and they know who Jesus Christ is. They have witnessed his life, his death and his resurrection and they have come to believe in that life. And they've come to understand the implications of that life for themselves and for the communities that they are lead leading. Simply, John wants to very clearly let everybody know from the start of this letter that they can trust the story they've been given of Jesus. They can trust what they have first received because friends, unlike our own context, the context of this letter written in the very early part of the church, there was no canon of scripture. There was no gospels we could, they could turn to to be reminded about the truth of God and the stories that describe who God is. They actually were a bunch of people who would gather together dependent upon those who had seen, who had the eyewitness testimony. We call them the apostles. They were dependent on remaining faithful to that teaching, continuing to be led in the Holy Spirit to be guided into the truth of that. But they were dependent upon the proclamation of that word and the remaining faithful to that word. The eternal, the visible and the intangible had been made manifest through the, to the apostles and now being taught to the church in such a way that they could indeed see it and hear it and, and handle it. And the, one of the reasons in the background of all this that is so important was that, you know, as you could probably appreciate, in the newness of the church itself, in the explosion of what happened at Pentecost and the starting of the church of God, the Christian, the movement, the way, there was always this risk and tendency that others would come in and change the story a little bit. They would bring in what the Bible describes as false teaching or heresy. Those things that depart from the central truth of the gospel. Those things that depart from the central reality of the person of Christ. And that was happening. And so Paul, and sorry, John in the background this is in his mind. This is concerning him and he's wanting to affirm those that he writes to. Remain faithful to what you have heard. This is the eyewitness testimony. It can be trusted. You can trust the story and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
John says at the end of that verse, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now that's a phrase that is designed to bring together two important concepts that are utterly entwined and that cannot be separated. It brings together the word of life as a real person whom we encounter in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it also brings together what Jesus himself called, Jesus calls himself the life. So we have the gospel proclamation, the real person we encounter, and Jesus describing himself as the light. And these things come together in this phrase that uh, John is using. They are entwined and they cannot be separated. And later on you'll learn as we go through this book that it was actually the false teachers that were trying to separate out these truths and create, in a sense, their own false teaching. So friends, as I said, Paul, uh, John, I'm going to have to stop doing that, everybody, aren't I? (laughs) John is concerned about whether or not we know God. John is concerned as to whether we know God. So what else can we know? What else can we explore about the word of life? So how about I take you to a story in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is teaching in a house that's quite small and it's packed full of people. Nobody else could possibly squeeze in. And there is a bunch of mates who have a friend who's been paralysed from birth. And they are so determined to get, Jesus, uh, to get their paralysed friend in front of Jesus, in front of this guy, this healer, that they go and dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down. Must have been a bit of a spectacle, like all that whole breaking up the roof and everything. But they're there, and Jesus takes one look at this paralyzed man. And do you know what he said? He said, your sins are forgiven. I think that must have caused a lot of confusion. Because quite clearly, this guy is in need of healing. So why is Jesus talking about forgiveness? And you know what? What Jesus said utterly outraged uh, the religious leaders. They said, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That was their critique. That was their criticism of Jesus. And Jesus asked this question, what is it easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat and walk? Now, if you're familiar with the story, Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins by telling the man to get up. Jesus didn't try to deny the religious leaders' outrage that only God has the right to forgive sins. But what Jesus did do was that he demonstrated that their conclusion about him was completely wrong. Jesus had the right because Jesus was God. A story, again, we find in John chapter 11. A story where a man by the name of Lazarus has died. He's kind of died a young man and it's brought incredible grief upon the family and the community of Jesus' disciples. This is a man that Jesus has known and his sisters are at the scene just uh, grieving and in sorrow. And Jesus comes to them and he looks into the eyes of a bereaved woman who's just lost her brother. And he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What profound words. This is not the teaching of just a good man. This is not just the teaching of a wise sage. Friends, this is the word of life you are witnessing. C.S. Lewis made a comment, C.S. Lewis made a comment about this very our story. He says about Jesus that this is the teaching of an egotistical maniac or an evil manipulator, or this is God in the flesh. What else can we learn concerning the word of life? Our last story, Mark chapter 14. While he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table and a woman with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. She broke the jar open and poured the ointment on his head. Jesus is the guest of honour at a dinner party. The party is being held by Simon the leper, who we presume now has been healed. And then a woman, a follower of Jesus, disrupts the party. The vessel is broken. It contains very expensive perfume, and this fragrance just fills the room. It's a very public thing that she's done. It's very extravagant, it's dramatic, and it's a passionate act of a woman who who is not just spontaneously responding, but she's been very intentional about what she's going to do. She's been very intentional about the cost and the sacrifice that she will bring so that she may do this beautiful thing to Jesus. And she didn't do it to earn God's love or his acceptance or God's forgiveness. No. No, she did it because she was responding to the truth that she perceived that God had put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who she is now in the presence of. That's why she did it. And according to Jesus, her insight and her perception was correct. And it far surpassed that of the disciples who were present. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We see that um, the disciples who are there respond with a little bit of aggression and a little bit of, I don't know, they seem to be a little bit appalled. They're a little bit appalled, I think, because the cost, simply the cost that she's gone to, maybe that money was better spent on the poor. They seem maybe a little bit embarrassed about what's going on here. And she is, in fact, scolded and criticised by the disciples. But Jesus says this to her. It is a good thing that she has done for me. It is a good thing that she has done for me. And so like us, learning about what it is to know who God is, know who God is as it's been revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. As we examine together and familiarize ourselves again with the stories of scripture, the stories of the gospel, I think that there are always opportunities for us to not just learn from like the, the wins and the triumphs of the disciples. Because I think we have so many times where we see in scripture where they had maybe missed a moment, where they'd maybe misunderstood something, where they had maybe kind of um, failed in some way. And those, those moments, 
actually give us permission to be God's people and our own frailties and misunderstandings that we indeed to have. But what I love about entering into scripture like this is that we always get the chance to rethink, okay, how might this story, how else might this story have been written? Because I personally think that as this story concludes of Mary with Jesus um, on this occasion, I actually think that there was a lost moment for the disciples. And I've always wondered, I wonder if there was a different response, a different way that this could have been written, or a different way that we can apply what we've learned and read in this story. So here's what I think it is. And I know it's a bit of a crazy idea, but if, just if, by chance, Peter or John or some other disciple had said something different, maybe it would have gone like this. Dear sister, could you keep some of that for me to pour on Jesus' head? Because I have had my sins forgiven. Because I have had my body healed. Because he has redeemed my life. And I would love to communicate my deep gratitude for Jesus with you. I would love to communicate this with you. Now, that would have been an amazing moment, right? Like, I reckon that, like, what a joy. What joy would have filled that room. Like, I think that that would have been like just a church plant ready to start, right? That would have just been straight up, it's time to plant a house church. For the community of the disciples to enter enter that act of worship, that act of reverence, that prophetic thing, I think is truly profound. And, and I guess that the reason why I've wondered so long about how different things might have panned out and how we, as the readers of Scripture, can put ourselves in the story and think about how we might respond, the reason why I love to do that is because I really believe in the importance of the experience of God in community. It's really important to me. Our ex experience of God here right now in our midst. Our experience together of listening to the word, to worshipping together, to sharing in things like communion, to fellowshipping with one another, the joy that is there for us. The experience we have together of God in community is extremely important to me. And I think it was extremely important to John as well as he was writing uh, to the church. Because, you know, we've discussed a lot about who Jesus was, but we also know, apart from everything that we've just unpacked a bit today, we also know that he lived himself. Jesus lived himself in very close community with a bunch of people he chose who would continue to be a witness after he had gone who would be a witness after he had gone. And this is a huge reason why John is wanting to make sure that uh, his proclamation, that his message to them as the eyewitness account is held so that they may indeed be the witnesses to that and that they may carry on in this proclamation. There's another reason that we come to in verse 3. I'll read it to you. It says this. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. There's a reason beyond the importance of proclamation. 
beyond the importance of making sure that the early church would hear the word and respond to it beyond the need for them to hold to what they had received from the apostles and that teaching. There was something else that John was going to say is extremely important. In fact, it's the whole reason for him as to why he is going to write to them. That you may have fellowship. That you may have fellowship. That you and I may have fellowship. And this word fellowship, it's actually used many times in the New Testament. And in Greek, we, it said it's the Greek word for it is koinonia. However, friends, it's actually quite a hard word to translate into English because it speaks of a supernatural friendship or a supernatural life that we share. A supernatural life that we share. Not just a natural life that we share. It's actually about communion. It's actually about a shared life and sharing the common things in life with a spiritual depth and an underpinning in the spiritual realm. It's actually also sometimes translated as a partnership. So as I said, proclamation is part of it, but it's not the end. The purpose for John of the gospel proclamation was not even salvation, but fellowship. It was fellowship. Yet properly understood, we can see that fellowship actually means salvation in its broadest sense. In the broadest sense of the word, this fellowship that God is speaking to us about, this fellowship that we are given, that we get to apply to our lives and to the situations that we find ourselves in, that we get to apply when we are in our spheres of influence, as we talked about this morning. That fellowship is, for us, reconciliation to God in Christ. That fellowship means a holy life. That fellowship means an incorporation into the body. And that fellowship also means eternal life. And you know where I just had such a fabulous and joyful experience uh, of fellowship recently? It was actually at the Alpha launch party. Friends, for those that that were there, it was just a phenomenal opportunity for us as God's people to be part of how a wider community might experience God. We were there as a community of God to help others experience who God was. And it was so fun. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb, and John Morris might say something to me later, but I think I was the second most excited person to be there. Calvin was entitled to be the first. But we were in this big shopping centre. And actually, as, even as a new person, I haven't been there that often, but it is big and it's kind of rambling all over the place. And yet in one off-to-the-side part of this place, we were bringing something, we were bringing the gospel into community. We were bringing the gospel outside of this place where we grow in it, where we are alive to it. We took it somewhere else. And we said to people who were passing by, hey, have you ever thought about Alpha? Have you ever thought about exploring faith? And we had, as you know, we had lots of people there. We had people there who were from New Life. We had people there who had invited people as guests. And we had passers-by who were so curious, so curious as to what was going on. There was a gravity about it. It was just drawing people and attracting interest and people wanting to know what is happening over there. I don't know whether you're aware, but it has like a a mezzanine level. There were people who stood on the mezzanine and I could just, you know, you could see them leaning in. 
like, I can't quite hear what that is. I don't know what that is. But what an incredible opportunity that we had to go out and be community, to invite people into a fellowship. That's what we were doing. And I was just, it was just so much joy for me to do that. And I wonder how else we might also be doing that. What John is also wanting us to be very clear about is where does our fellowship come from? Where does our fellowship come from? What does it arise out of? Because it doesn't just arise out of the fact that we have got good social cohesion here. It doesn't just arise out of the fact that we have some nice aesthetics that help people feel welcome. As Calvin shared, it arises because we are dependent upon the fellowship of God. We were dependent upon prayer for that event to be all that it was supposed to be. We are dependent for our fellowship that it stems from, arises out of fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is a byproduct. It's the response of what God has revealed to us in Christ. Fellowship is participating in the grace of God. It is salvation in Christ. It is receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And together, all these things, all these things make us one. All these things unite us together. And we hear the echoes of that prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, where he said, Lord, would you make them one as we are one? And again, that oneness, that unity, is where we experience fullness of joy fullness of joy the body of Christ took themselves to the Rabina town center and in that unity having depended upon God in prayer having said to God would you make yourself known in this community as we step out and do something we've never done before God was present to us and fellowship was there and it was real and the joy was incredible Interestingly or importantly, we are told that we may have this fellowship. It's not a fellowship we earn. It's not a fellowship we work for. The fellowship of God in unity with the fellowship of the Son and with the Spirit is something that we are actually, that is made available for us. It says that you may have it. That you may have it, not that it might come by you if you do certain things. This is really important because indeed a fellowship that we have to work for is not a joyful thing at all. It's, it, it's a burdensome thing. Friends, we're about to move into a time of holy communion. And as I look to this table, um, it's just a, a special moment to pause and to realise that around this table is fellowship. Is fellowship that we're invited to be part of. And if you're joining with us online and you'd like to start to get ready, uh, preparing yourselves to have communion, um, now's a great time for you to be doing that. But this is a table where we share together in the fellowship of the Holy Trinity of Love. This is where we partake 
of ordinary things like bread and wine. It's a place where we remember the passion and the death of Jesus Christ, which has made this fellowship possible for us today. If you have a look to the screen, you'll notice that I've put up a piece of art. It's, it's commonly known as an icon, and it's a form of uh, early art from around about the 4th century, sorry, the 14th century, and this particular artwork is painted by a monk. Now, it's just an artistic impression. But friends, I want to just invite you to actually see that and to recognise that actually around this table is expressed the incredible love of God, the incredible sacrifice and the power and the glory of God. All of it is here for us. And the lovely thing is that this expression, the profound thing is that this expression of God's love is made completely accessible as in we can all come to this table. We are all invited to come. And this in some ways is what this artwork is just trying to describe. And it's trying to describe some things that again people who followed who were Christians didn't necessarily have the canon of scripture or it wasn't actually in a language that they were able to access. So visual representations of biblical truths was indeed very, very important. It's not something that we necessarily draw on heavily now in our own practice, but actually for in a historical way, it's quite significant. You might remember that when in our Genesis series, we talked about the three guests that came and visited Abraham and Sarah. And so biblically, this is, this is depicting the visitation of those three guests come to Abraham and Sarah to tell them about the birth of the child. I'm going to just tell you a little bit more about that drawing, about that art, before we um, come to our elements. But just take a moment to have a look. The persons there, or the angels there, they're all linked together by a common blue garment. And for this artist's mind, the blue represents or symbolises the sky and the heavens and eternity. We see that sort of overlaid on this piece of art is it's kind of got this golden look about it, which is actually supposed to just represent the majesty and the glory of God. And in the background of the picture we see uh, sort of like a holy city. The person or the angel on the right, that represents the Holy Spirit. The blue robe is covered by a green cloak because in this artist's mind, green is the colour of life. And then the angel or the person sitting in the middle represents Jesus, the son. And again, the blue cloak is overlaid by a deep red robe. Red depicting the colour of earth and the blood of the cross, the blood of crucifixion. The one to the left uh, actually represents the father. There is the undergarment of the blue, but there is also this kind of translucent, unable to truly describe what colour is there, what is going on. It's supposed to be uh, something we can't describe, that words are too confining for us to describe what we see in God. There's also a table. And even though it's very hard to make out, uh, there's that chalice there that you'll see, but there is also in that chalice the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. 
Behold the Lamb of God, slain on the cross, slain before the foundations of the world. That's what sits at the center of the table. There is actually a lot, there's a lot more theology involved in this picture, but we're not going to go there today. But you can just appreciate for a moment just the way that they're sitting and their gaze and their, their family resemblance, if you like, and their relatedness and their oneness. But most importantly, can you observe the place at the front of the table? Do you see that? Do you see that there's a place there that is inviting us to come and partake? That the, that the other part, the other face of the table is empty? That that's our invitation to become and be part of this communion? This is where we are able to step in. This is where we are able to respond to the goodness of God and hear the invitation that we may have fellowship, that we may come and partake and participate. So on that, um, I'm going to pray. Um, but just before I do pray, because we will now begin to work through um, how we enter into communion. So you don't need to open up your element just yet because I have something important that I'd like to say just as by way of invitation, but I want to be really intentional about this. The invitation is for us to know God and to enter into the fellowship that God has for us. And if that is very a very new idea for you, if that's just a concept that has been a little bit foreign or a little bit seemingly out of your reach, if you've wondered and thought about who God is and whether you'd like to be in a relationship with God, I just want to encourage you that now is the time to maybe make that decision. And I say that only because part of my own story and my own journey to knowing God was one of somewhat urgency. So I don't want to lose this moment because we are going to share communion together. And there's a beautiful line in our communion liturgy that says, we come as we are. We come as we are. And it says, would you like to come knowing and loving God a little, but wanting to love him more? And if you've never actually thought, I want to love God, even a little, and come just as I am, now is your time to do that. And I would love for you to now be, be taking part with us in communion, having had that stirring in your heart. And I'd love to speak to you after the service and, and pray with you about that decision that you're making right now. So friends, hear that this is a table that is open and you are welcome to come and participate. And if this is the first time you're participating, you are welcome to come here, declaring that there is a God who you want to know, who loves you, who accepts you, and one that you want to respond to. So on that might I pray, and I will continue to give you instructions as to what to do with your elements. May I pray? Almighty Father, creator and sustainer of life, your majesty and your power, your continued blessings and your great goodness fill us with absolute wonder. We are unworthy of the pardon you have given in mercy to us. We are unworthy of your love. We are unworthy of this fellowship but you have said that we may have it. It is for us to participate in. And so we bring really only our thanks. We bring only ourselves before you, trusting, trusting in your son, 
who alone saves us from evil and who through the Holy Spirit walks with us through the messiness of life. And so, Father God, we lift our hearts and our praises to you and we give you all glory. We give you all glory and all honour to your precious and holy name. Amen. Friends, in thanks we remember how Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and handed it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't need to rip yet. <laughs> I'm here in the rip. And then in a similar way, on that same night, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So whenever we do this together, we give thanks remembering that Jesus invites us to this table and he imprints on our hearts his sacrifice of the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come down and pour out on these elements that we, as we receive the bread and the wine, that we may be assured that Christ's promises exist in these signs and that they will indeed be fulfilled. Holy Spirit, would you make us one with Jesus? Would you make us one with each other and one in ministry in the world until that glorious day when we feast again with you in the kingdom? Through your Son, Jesus Christ, in your holy church, all honour and glory are yours, Father Almighty, now and forever. Amen. This is the time to take. This is the time to do the holy rip. Just take off the first layer and we will eat together the body of Christ. Friends, the body of Christ, let's eat together. like to open the wine. Let's hold it together. Friends, the blood of Christ shed for us and for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink. Would you stand with me? I'm just going to close in a word of thankful prayer for this meal that we've shared and then we're going to continue in worship. Let's pray. Oh, loving and gracious God, holy trinity of love, we are deeply grateful for this moment that you have brought us together around this table to share this meal. We have indeed met with you in these ordinary things of bread and wine. We have indeed, by your supernatural power, been united together with Christ. And we ask that you would fill us now afresh with your Holy Spirit. That through us, the light and the love of Jesus Christ might shine in the world. And that you would be glorified, giving all glory to you here on earth. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.